Well, it's, it's time. It's, uh, it's time for, uh, for uh, Grampy Rob to read a story to you. I'm reading from the sixth book in the children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, The Silver Chair. Jill is the heroine of the story. Jill has heard about Narnia, and she's heard about Aslan, the Christ figure in Lewis's children's series. But she's never been to Narnia, never met Aslan until now, completely unexpectedly. She finds herself in Narnia, trying to find her bearing. She realizes she is tremendously thirsty. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. She realized it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger. A sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if, if I do come? Asked Jill. I make no promise, says the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had taken a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, Dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. 
I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had ever seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Let's move from the fictional to the factual. Let's move from the physical to the spiritual. We're in John chapter 7. Jesus says in verse 37, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This is a call to all. Regardless of the age in which you live, regardless of the generation, regardless of the language you speak, the nation that you call home, this is given to all. Now Jesus said these words during a feast in Jerusalem the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, a.k.a. the, the, uh, the Feast of the Ingathering. It was the, the, the last feast celebrating the fall harvest. It was a feast that reenacted what God did, what God provided his people as they left their Egyptian captivity and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. God provided them manna to eat and living water to drink. This feast celebrated God's provision. Now, um, Moses uh, was the one who led the people in this um, this feast of tabernacles or, or booths. And Moses lived about 1500 B.C. 900 years later, God kicked his people out of his land. They were removed from the promised land because of their disobedience, their unwillingness to follow God's ways, to live according to his law. And so he removed them, and they were captive again, this time by the Babylonians. That 70-year captivity came, and it went. And upon their return, they resolved to live according to God's law. 
yeah, that was the smart thing to do. So in the process, they instituted some spiritual disciplines in their life and in their culture. Nehemiah was one of the leaders as a result of the exile and and bringing the people back and, and seeing that some of these spiritual disciplines were put in place. Nehemiah was the governor of, um, of, of uh, Judea. In uh, the book, the Old Testament book that bears his name, we read of some of the discipline that they established. And I'm in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read portions of chapter 8 and chapter 9. I'd l- love for you to follow along with me. Nehemiah chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in the middle, was, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Seventh month. Ezra read. Ezra preached. We find a little bit later in the chapter that uh, there were a number of priests who, verse 8, as they read from the book of the law, they translated it to give the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here, uh, as the people gathered in the seventh month, that will come up again. Here at that time, Ezra is reading the law of God. And on this very first day where they instituted this this practice, uh, the, the people were absolutely overwhelmed. They were astonished. They were horrified. They were convicted of their sin. Mm. Uh, Look down at verse 13, chapter 8. On the second day, the heads of fathers' households of all the people, the priests of Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Even though they were broken, crushed, convicted, the day before they came back. Because they, they, they heard, they saw in the law of God what they needed. Verse 14. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, uh, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booths, that is tents, lean-tos, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. 
the entire assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths, tents, and lived in them. Sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of, D- of Nun, to that day. Joshua? A thousand years earlier? And there was great rejoicing. Verse 18. As we read from the book of the law daily, from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. Now in the next chapter, these Levites that stood alongside Ezra and as they went into small groups and explained the meaning of the law that Ezra read, these Levites prayed. And chapter 9 is a record of one of the prayers that they ushered that they uttered. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. They're rehearsing the work of God as the Israelites left Egypt a thousand years previous. They said to the Lord, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. Verse 15. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth rock, uh, water from a rock for them for their thirst. Verse 19, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave them your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you did not withhold from them. You gave them water for their thirst. Notice in verse 20 what these Levites rehearsed. What did God give his people as they left Egypt? He gave them his spirit. He gave them manna, bread to eat. And he gave them water. Now turn with me to another celebration of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, in John chapter 7. In our study through this chapter, we find Jesus in a hostile interaction with the religious leaders. And it continues in our text this morning. The the religious leaders are intent on taking Jesus out, removing his voice. You remember from our study in chapter 5, Jesus is in Jerusalem for a different feast of booths or tabernacles. It was in chapter 5 that Jesus healed a man who was for 38 years diseased and disabled. And on a Sabbath day, Jesus healed this man. That took place in Jerusalem at tabernacles. One year later, we're in chapter 7. Verse 1 tells us 
that Jesus was walking in Galilee at that time, for he was unwilling to walk to Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now in our text, beginning in verse 32, we find that the religious leaders are even more intent, even more serious, have taken yet further measures to arrest Jesus and remove his voice. Follow along with me as I read our text from John chapter 7, beginning at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you, and I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now, the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, If anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from the innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I divided our text according to the paragraph markings in the New American Standard translation from uh, verse 32 to verse 36. Uh, point number one, the call of the leaders to arrest Jesus. And in the next paragraph, verses 37 to 39, the call of Christ to come and to believe. Our, uh, our text begins with, with an unusual event, namely, the Pharisees and the chief priests agreeing with one another and coming together to work with one another. The Pharisees were the conservatives. They were the religiously minded. They were the ones who held Rome at an arm's length. The chief priests, a.k.a. the Sadducees, were the more liberal uh, group among the Jews, uh, they were the politically minded. They were the ones who were not ashamed to get in bed with Rome on occasion if it suited their purposes. And here, the Republicans and Democrats, I mean, the Pharisees and Sadducees got together and because there was one common enemy, namely Jesus, they agreed to work with one another. Now, previously, they had said to one another, we have got to get rid of this Jesus of Nazareth. Now they've taken a, another step. And verse 32 says that they sent officers to seize Jesus. So, so now, beyond simply 
talk among themselves and minutes that they recorded in their, uh, in their meetings. And now it was legal. Now it was official. Now there was a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. And the officers were sent to do the deed. Now the officers here that we will learn more about next Lord's Day, these officers were the temple police. Now these were the guys without guns and without pepper spray. These were the guys under the authority of the Sanhedrin that did what the court wanted them to do that Rome didn't care about. So they sent these temple officers to arrest Jesus. And in response, Jesus said, verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you, and I go to him who sent me. Now, Jesus was not afraid of walking in the front door. He knew, because the Father sent him for this purpose, he knew that he was to die. He knew it's plain in Scripture. He knew that he would be executed, that he would be hung on a tree. He would be crucified. He knew all of that. And he was willing to accept that. But Jesus also knew that it would be on his timetable, not theirs. So even though here at this feast, even the year before at Tabernacles, uh, even though the, 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 the Pharisees and the chief priests wanted to arrest Jesus right then and there, no, it wasn't going to happen. Which is why Jesus delayed going up to Jerusalem on this final uh, uh, Feast of Tabernacles in his earthly life. He went up later because he didn't want to draw attention to himself. He didn't want to... to Uh, give reason, impetus for the religious leaders to snatch him up, take him away, because his time had not yet come. For a little while longer, I am with you, and I am going to put up with you. And then, I go to him who sent me. Now, the the religious leaders didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know the Father's plan. Uh, They didn't really care. Jesus was in their way. He was challenging their traditions. He was challenging their way of life. Verse 34, so... You will seek me, Jesus says to these men, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, this caused a great deal of, of uh, consternation on, um, on their part. Uh, what, what, what do you mean? 
Where does this man intend that he's, he, he's going to go? We can't find him. Is he intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Uh, the dispersion uh, refers to um, the, the, the Jews that were scattered by uh, Nebuchadnezzar, at, uh, I'm sorry, by um, uh, the Assyrians, by Sennacherib, uh, when they were invaded way back in the 8th century B.C., and the Jews that were scattered at that time um, thrived, but they intermarried, and they were a, a mixed race of people. These are the, the, the ten lost tribes of Israel. So the, the religious leaders in Jesus' day were surmising, well, is, is Jesus going to try to escape um, our, um, the warrant that is out for his arrest is he, is he going to try to escape and go to, to the dispersion among the Jews? And, they ask, is he going to teach Greeks? That is, is he saying that we're not going to be able to find him because he is going to be so obscure that even though he's out at the, the hinter parts of the, the, the known world, is he going to be teaching Greeks? Is he not even going to be among the Jews? any Jews. They didn't know. When Jesus said, you will seek me, but will not find me where I am, you cannot come, they scratched their heads. They could not figure it out. Now, the warning that Jesus um, gives here is repeated over in chapter 8, if you let your eyes travel over there to verse 21. Jesus says, he's amplifying what he says in chapter 7, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Because they would not come to Christ and believe. There was confusion. There was hostility toward Jesus in his day. If you look at verse 21 that we concluded our uh, reading last week, verse 20, 31 uh, says, many of the crowd believed. So you have those that were hostile toward Jesus, those who hated Jesus, and those who were believing on him. Same is true in our day. There are those that hate him, that are hostile to Christ, will use his name as a swear word. And there are those who believe on him, who have found him to be their soul's satisfaction. Second page of your notes. The call of Christ to come and drink. Verse 37 opens by saying, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out. I want you to put a pause button there right in, in, in the middle of, the, of that sentence. We're not going to read again. 
what Jesus said quite yet because I want to give you a little bit more fullness to what was going on at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booze, here in the first century. Now, according to rabbinic writings, we know that this is the tradition of the Jews at this uh, feast, at this uh, period of time. First, a little geography lesson. I'm going to draw this map from your perspective. I'm going to draw the city of Jerusalem. It starts in the north on a hill, and it moves downward. As you travel south in Jerusalem, you go downhill. At the very top is where we find the temple, Mount Moriah. To the east, toward the Mount of Olives, toward the east is is um, where, where we find the Gion Springs. Springs of water that come out of the side of the mountain. It was that, uh, those springs that King Hezekiah wanted to capture during his reign because during his reign, uh, um, the Assyrians were swarming. The Assyrians were the ones that took captive the, the ten northern tribes. And when they <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> and when they came to Jerusalem in order to capture that city, Hezekiah, forward thinking man that he was, said, We can't give them this free source of water. So he wanted to rein in the springs and keep it within the walls of Jerusalem. So he did what was unthinkable and even today is mind-boggling. He had his engineers create a tunnel in the middle of the city, below the city, a, a tunnel through solid rock that would capture the Gion Springs and bring it into a pool at the south end of the city, downhill. If ever you have the opportunity to go to Jerusalem, make sure you put it on your bucket list to walk through the Hezekiah Tunnels. It's an engineering marvel where some workers started um, at the uphill part and, and, and built a tunnel, dug the rock out, and as they were going downhill, as they were going south, uh, there were other excavators coming uphill, coming north, and they met in the middle. And they're like, like they, they were like, uh, I forget how much it was. It, was. it was like an inch or two off when they met. It's like, in the 8th century B.C.? How in the world did they do this? In the middle of a mountain? Oh, but they did. And it's wonderful. I've walked through it. It is the coolest. <laughs> so in, in Jerusalem, as a result of Hezekiah's work, the Gion Springs have been captured, and, and they come down this, this tunnel of, of, of rock, and they empty out into the Pool of Siloam, the south end of the city, downhill. 
In the first century, according to the rabbis, at the Feast of Tabernacles, commemorating what God had done, his provision for his people during their 40 years of wandering, providing manna, providing living water from the rock. In the first century, a priest went down to the lowest part of Jerusalem, and he took a golden pitcher and he filled it with water from the pool of Siloam. And he led a throng of worshipers up to the temple in the city. And the, um, the, the worshipers sang um, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which reads, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. The imagery is so rich. As the, as, as the priest walks up with this golden pitcher full of water from the pool, he comes to, into the temple and he pours out that water as an offering unto the Lord on the, the, uh, the altar of burnt offering. He does that in the morning every morning of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, except on the last day, the great day of the feast. Where it begins in the same way, the priest is down at the Pool of Siloam. He fills the golden pitcher full of water. He leads the worshipers up, uh, up to the, uh, the, the temple. And this time... As the worshipers are singing, the, the, the priest walks around the altar six times. And reminiscent of, of Israel walking around the walls of Jericho, he walks around a seventh time. And then he ascends the, the few steps up to the altar of burnt offering. And he holds up the golden pitcher. And the people shout, telling him to raise it higher. And then he pours out that water onto the burnt offering altar. It is at, at, at one moment a an acknowledgement of God's gracious provision to give us what we desperately need, water to drink. And at the end of their harvest, a prayer that God would do the same this upcoming year. Is it possible, returning to our text, verse 37, is it possible that when the text reads on the last day, the great day of the feast, that Jesus stood and cried out as the people were crying to the priest, raise it higher, and then pouring it out. Was it at that point that Jesus stood and cried out 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. We don't know. It certainly is within the realm of possibility. Maybe more so. Maybe it is a probability. This is a universal call. A call to go to everyone without exception. People of every language, race, from every nation, every people group, in every age, even our own. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I put in your notes three statements that all have a blank at the end. I want you to fill them in. Three words, uh, three, three statements of, of, of application of, of this wonderful text. First, the living water of Christ alone satisfies a universal need. It satisfies a universal need. The French mathematician Blaise Pascal, famous for his work, Pensees, uh, translated thoughts, wrote this. Listen. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. This God-shaped vacuum. Oh, there are so many things that people use to, to fill it. They, they, they try to fill it with material things. They tried to fill it with physical things like sex or chemical things like alcohol, drugs. They try to fill it with, with emotional things like relationships. All of these are vain, empty attempts to fill what only Christ can satisfy. I was reminded this morning as I was getting ready of uh, Coleridge's poem, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. It was the cry of the ancient mariner who was running for his life. Bobbing on the sea, he was surrounded by water and yet was so tremendously thirsty. Water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. People seek to satisfy that God-shaped vacuum with all kinds of, of things that look like water, even feel like water, but, oh, you taste it and it's, it's salty. It doesn't satisfy. Former CBS news anchor Dan Rather in, 19, uh, in 2003 uh, expressed his love for broadcast journalism. And he said this, This job is about as close to heaven as I expect to get. 
Now, I don't know if we're to take his words at face value or if he was intending that we, we, we see a figure of speech in that. But for a moment, let's take it at face value. There may be things in our life right now, his job at that particular moment, that brings some satisfaction. But what happens when the job is gone? When that person is gone? When those material possessions are gone? What happens when the things that we're we're, we're trying to fill that God-shaped vacuum with and find satisfaction are no longer there? What happens? What happens when the void returns? What happens when the thirst intensifies? The living water of Christ alone satisfies a universal need. We all have it. Second, the water of Christ that lives is a recognized need. The living water of Christ satisfies a universal need. Secondly, the water of Christ that lives is a recognized need. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He meant that. Anyone. Are you thirsty? The gift of of this living water is free. There There is no charge. You you don't have to meet some kind of criteria. There's nobody taking a a poll to see if if your skin is the right tone or or if you speak the right language or if you have certain academic credentials. That does not matter. Here's the condition, though. Here's the requirement. Here's the necessary prerequisite. If this is not true, mm, there is no satisfaction. That universal need will remain unmet. This is the condition. You have to admit that you're thirsty. There must be this recognition. I need something that I do not possess. Further, I must see that only Christ can provide it. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, said, you will never know the fullness of Christ, the satisfaction of Christ's work, his his forgiveness, for example. You will never know the fullness of Christ until you know the emptiness of everything else. That person who knows that emptiness of everything else recognizes their universal need. They recognize that Jesus is the one and only giver of life.
So it is when we come to him who is the giver of life, the giver of this living water. When we come to him with empty, outstretched hands, those are the ones that find satisfaction in Christ. Those are the thirsty souls that find refreshment. So I ask you, do you recognize this spiritual thirst in your soul? Do you recognize a need for God, for forgiveness, for life beyond this life? If you answer no to these questions, you're wasting your time listening to me. But if you say yes, will you trust Jesus alone to fill what you need? Third, sharing the living water of Christ is a privileged need. Sharing the living water of Christ is a privileged need. Look at verse 38 in our text. Jesus says, He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. There are multiple layers of meaning in this particular verse. Now, I don't know that there is a specific chapter and verse that Jesus is referring to when he says, as the Scripture said. We do know that there are some allusions in the Old Testament to life-giving water. We find two of them in the Exodus that the Jews were celebrating during this time of the Feast of Booths. The first came, Exodus chapter 17. The first came before the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, before they received the law. And having left Egypt, having crossed the Red Sea, they were hungry, they were thirsty, they were desperate, and God provided Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, we read this. Behold, I will stand before you on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, God said to Moses, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So as the people cried out to the Lord for water, for to, to assuage their thirst. God said to Moses, stand on the rock, strike the rock, and from it will flow living water. Moses did so, and the people were satisfied in their thirst by drinking the living water. The second time this kind of event happened took place years later in their wandering experience. In Numbers chapter 20, Verse 8, we read this. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. 
Take the rod, and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. Moses did not do so on this occasion. The first time the the Lord brought forth water from the rock, he told Moses to strike the rock. This time he didn't tell Moses to strike the rock. What did he tell him to do? Speak to the rock. Moses did not speak to the rock. He struck the rock. And for that, God denied him entrance into the promised land. Why, that's awfully cruel of God, is it? Isn't it? Uh, that his, his faithful servant would be denied that which had been his goal for decades? Well, God says what he means, and he means what he says. And on this occasion, uh, there wasn't just a little peccadillo on uh, Moses' part. He didn't have just a, a little sin uh, that, that God should overlook. There wasn't just a little white lie that he told. No. Moses did disobey God, and he violated a picture of redemption in the process. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 tells us, Paul tells us, Christ is that rock. So when God told Moses to strike the rock only one time, not two times, he was giving us a picture of God's redemption, how he was going to bring living water to his people through Christ the rock. He was to be struck. He was to be killed. He was to be executed one time. He was to die one time, not two times. So back in our text here, uh, when Jesus talking, is talking about living waters flowing forth, he is talking about himself on one, on one hand, and he is talking about what is um, going to come from his life on another hand, and the one who is bringing these living waters on that, on that, in, in that second uh, uh, way of understanding this is the Holy Spirit, whom we understand from verse 39 is going to come but has not yet come. Now, there's another layer of meaning here on verse 39. Read it a little more carefully. This is, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, to, um, uh, to the religious leaders, to anyone there in the temple as he, he stood up to, to proclaim. And he said, from his, the believers, innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So in another sense, Jesus is not talking about himself, not talking about what is done 
uh, through him by the Spirit, he is talking about what is done through his people who believe. Through them will flow rivers of living water. That is, those who have been touched by the Lord, those who come to faith, those who believe, they have the privileged opportunity. Indeed, it is their need to give living water. How many times have you heard people say, how many times have you heard yourself say, or at least think the idea in your mind, I want my life to count. I, I, I want to touch the lives of my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids. I, 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 want to, I, I want to make an impact in the world around me. Not that I'm looking for fame or notoriety. I just want to make a positive difference. How do you make that positive difference? It is when those rivers of living water are flowing from your innermost being. In the Lone Star State, state of Texas, there are two things that make real estate very valuable. Oil, of course, it's not talked, it's not pronounced that way. It's not oil, it's all. <laughs> all and water. If you have water on your property in the Lone Start State, much of which is dry, desolate, barren, and lifeless, if you have water on your, on, on your property that you're looking to sell, or if you have uh, maybe an aquifer underneath and it is known, and you are able to secure the rights and availability of that, your listing by your real estate agent will note it as live water property. That makes it usable. That makes it significant. Because you've got to have water to irrigate, to, to take care of livestock. It's a necessity. Because dry ground drinks water. And animals drink lots of water. Let me ask you. If you are one of these, one of these many who have believed, are you prepared, willing to be poured out on the lives of dry souls to show them where they can get this living water. 
Think of, um, think of uh, the Samaritan woman. She was privileged to, to talk with Jesus about this life-giving water. She was convicted, overwhelmed, amazed, converted. And what did she do? She went to the elders of her city. They were all sitting in the gate. And she told them, I I think I've found Messiah. She was pouring out her water. Telling them where they'll find that, 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 that substance that fills that God-shaped vacuum in their souls. And they went to Jesus, and they listened to Jesus, and they begged Jesus, please stay in our homes Linger, please. We want to hear more. We want to know more. John chapter 4, verse 42. They said to this woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We have a privileged need to communicate the power, the life of the gospel to a needy world. We are blessed to be a blessing. Let's pray. Our blessed God, how grateful we are, how privileged we are to hear the words of truth, to know the words of truth in Christ. We pray that you would be blessed by our response. Find us faithful, trusting, ever eager to know him who is truth, the living water himself, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.